do you ever feel like life is passing you by? Do you ever feel like you are wasting your life? Do you ever feel like whatever circumstance it is that you're in, your job, your life situation, your, just your station, that it's a complete waste of your time, your energy, your talents, your potential? Do you ever feel like if it were up to you, you could do it a whole lot better? I know this, I know some people who dreamed of that great ideal American retirement. You know the retirement I'm talking about. And circumstances have come up in their lives that have prevented them from realizing this dream. And they are remarkably bitter about it. I know scores of women who dreamed of being a mommy. And in the midst of the non-stop, highly unglamorous nature of being a mommy, they find themselves experiencing frequent bouts of depression. I know hundreds of men who started their careers excited to be that superstar at the office. And in the midst of the daily grind, they've lost all enthusiasm. And each day is a plodding one foot in front of the other, and they go through it like a zombie. When we are in the midst of circumstances that are trying, it is all too easy for us to fall into doubt or despair or depression as our thoughts contrast our present reality with what we imagine ourselves doing in an ideal circumstance. And then we find ourselves languishing and experiencing this discontented restlessness in our hearts as we long for something else. You ever been there? We are often tempted, uh, we are often tempted to interpret our positive experiences when things are going our way as an indicator or a sign that God is pleased with us. That God is happy with how we are doing, with what we're doing, and that God is rewarding us. Conversely, we are all too often tempted to think that our difficult circumstances are indicators of God's discipline, of God's displeasure. Or perhaps simply he's trying to get our attention. And so we think that, oh, if I'll just learn whatever lesson it is God wants me to learn, this too will pass, and my life will get back to the good times. The bad times, the trying circumstances in our minds are something to be endured, perhaps, but they're definitely something to get out of. You know those movies where it starts at the end and then the rest of the movie is sort of like backtracking and, and filling you in on how you get there? Well, today we're going to sort of do that. In verse 18, the last verse in our passage, we see Paul rejoicing. Now, rejoicing 
is simply the verb form of the word joy. Okay? To rejoice is the action of doing joy. And joy is a noun that is something you possess. Okay? Last week, we introduced the concept of joy in this book. And we talked about how joy is a positive disposition or attitude that is based upon our confidence in the sure word of God concerning the past, the present, and the future. And to the extent that we grasp the reality of God's control of the past, the present, and the future, to that extent, we are possessed by and possess, take possession of joy. We talked about how joy is an attitude, not an emotion. So you can have joy in the midst of feeling sad, okay? We talked about how like a teenager is characterized by a bad attitude, and so that means their, their happiness is short-lived and their, and their anger is easily provoked. With joy as your upbeat, positive disposition because you know the end of the story, yeah, you'll experience rough times, but it quickly restores your equilibrium because you serve a great God who is victorious. So at the end of the book, at the end of these, these verses, I mean, Paul is expressing joy. He is doing joy in his circumstances. Right off the bat, this establishes the principle that in your circumstances, you can't do joy unless you have joy. You cannot do something of which you have no reservoir within yourself. Let's think in terms of science, some mechanics. You know, you've got potential energy and you've got, what kind of energy? Potential and kinetic. Now, you are like a battery that is storing up some sort of ethos, okay? The Spirit of God, as you take, as you appropriate God's sovereign control of history for your good and His glory, and as you come to appropriate how this will affect the outcome for you, joy fills up in your heart. So you can express it out in terms of action or kinetic energy. So, Paul starts there. And we have to start there. Because as we look at our negative circumstances and wonder, how can I endure these for God's glory? Indeed, how can I have joy in the midst of them? If you do not have joy in your heart to begin with, you won't be able to express joy in the circumstance. So let me ask you, to what extent have you personally appropriated God's sure word concerning the past, the present, and the future for you? Is the reality of the victory of God real to you? Or is it just an esoteric concept? If it's just a concept, joy will be hard to possess. So Paul is sitting there with joy. How, how did he come to have this joy in this circumstance? Well, 
He's sitting here in jail, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And as we learn from other books, most of his friends have left him. And so he's sitting there doing ministry, and he's surrounded, as he has been for most of his ministry, by critics. So there introduces two themes that most of us have to deal with. Circumstances that are unpleasant, and oh yeah, those critics. Have you ever had a critic in your life? Sure you have. Come on. If you haven't, if you haven't had a critic rise up, you probably haven't been trying hard enough. Okay? Critics abound. And they can be very discouraging. Critics are very powerful influencers. You've probably read that it takes one or, or takes five compliments to counteract one negative comment. Negative comments are powerful. You could line up a bunch of people and they could all just go down the line telling you great things about yourself and the person who says the critical comment, that's the one you'll remember. But yet, despite these persistent critics, Paul has joy. Well, how does he do that? How do you have joy in the face of unpleasant circumstances and persistent critics? That's the question. How do you have joy in the face of this? Well, in this passage, I believe that there are three basic keys that, are, that Paul reveals to us that will help us as we try to live joyfully on mission for Christ in this world. These three keys are, look beyond the face value of your circumstance. That's a mouthful, we'll say it again. Look beyond the face value of your circumstance. Second, remember that your circumstance is your duty assignment. Remember that your circumstance is your duty assignment. And three, God's purpose for you in your circumstance is bigger than your critic. Okay? God's purpose for you in your circumstance is bigger than your critic. What do I mean? To look at the first one, we must look beyond the face value of our circumstance if we are to find joy in our circumstance. Turn with me, put your finger on verses 12 through 14. We're going to walk through this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... Okay, stop there. Okay, what has happened to him? Kind of like what we just talked about. He's sitting in jail... Most of his friends have abandoned him. He's chained up. He's taken away. He's, he's lost his freedom. And he, the one who's usually running, 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 is having to cool his jets. That is what's happened to him. Now, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay. Look at this verse again and put your finger over the word really. Over it, like hide it. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That's what it would say. So if it was simply saying that, then Paul would say, then Paul would be saying to us that, hey, this, 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 this consequence has produced this effect. I've gone to jail and it's affected the spread of the gospel. Glory, hallelujah. But by inserting the word really, 
there. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's conveying to us that by all natural first glance appearances, what has happened to him would seem to have been something that would have killed his ministry. In other words, he's in a circumstance that by all natural first glance appearances, it would seem to be a stuck in the mud, spinning of the wheels, dead end, waste of time. Is that what your life seems to be like? First appearance glance, nothing is going on. Natural appearances would say that, hey, what I'm going through right now cannot be used of God to fulfill the mission that he has appointed for me. But then he says, really serve to advance the gospel. In other words, contrary to what you might think, lo and behold, it has actually served to advance the gospel. In other words, his circumstances have not slowed down his mission at all. When we're in undesirable circumstances, we question God, don't we? We sometimes get angry at God. God, this doesn't make sense. You've called me to do this. And don't you know that if I was in this other circumstance over here, I could do it, but now I can't. I'm spinning my wheels. The eyes of faith allow us to look back to step back and say, you know what? First glance appearances aren't always reality. And it allows you to see behind the curtain what God is doing. And what has God done? Well, he says that it's advanced the gospel. And how has it advanced the gospel? In verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, two ways that the gospel has been advanced because he's in jail. First, it's put him into proximity with a group of people that he would never have had access. You typically don't get access to the elite Praetorian Guard. It's like ministering to the Secret Service. How do you do that? It's hard to access those people, right? The Praetorian Guard were the elite guard of Caesar, and his imprisonment has given him access. So his direct witnessing to those people, but also his example. As he's lived faithfully in the midst of difficulty, his example has inspired others. And so now they are spreading the gospel. So through both direct witnessing to a people to whom he had previously no access and through inspiring others, the gospel has continued to progress. I would suggest that what Paul is showing us here is that the sign of a maturing Christian, Christian is our ability to assess our circumstances, not in the light of how happy we are about them, but in the light of what God is doing through them. When it comes to our contentedness, we have to make a choice. Do we focus on the pleasantness of our circumstance? Or do we focus on what God is doing with us? Do you remember how back in verse 1 we learned that Paul identifies himself in this book rather uniquely as a servant? Someone whose whole life exists for the purposes of another. Now, 
when Paul said that, he wasn't just shedding some grand bit of truth about himself personally. He was intending for each of us, you and I, to understand that we too are servants of King Jesus. Now, when we live our lives resisting the notion that we belong to Jesus, we, we chafe when the Lord puts us in circumstances we don't like. But when we remember, I am His and He is mine, and there's a world that desperately needs to hear, then we are able to see in our circumstances increased venues for mission fulfillment. Our problem is that we think God works through success. We think that God does His best work when we've got a big-name speaker up on a stage with a crowd of thousands. We think God works best when there's this great big edifice of a building and a great big budget. We think God works best when the limelight is shining. But Paul here reminds us that, you know what? Sometimes when it's dark, it's precisely when things are going best. We are so hung up on the notion that success means easy or positive circumstances. And yet throughout Scripture, God consistently, time and time again, demonstrates that His way of working is contrary to the wisdom of the world. Whether it's from Moses' simple wooden rod to Gideon's trumpets to David's sling, God uses simple things. And here, it's Paul's chains that are the things being used by God to advance the gospel. So what about your circumstance? Paul was chained to a Roman guard on a, on a chain that was typically about nine feet long. What circumstance are you chained to? And what is God doing in that circumstance? Two key things here. First, don't waste your circumstance. Live faithfully. Think about how this whole thing would have been different if Paul had been sitting there sulking in the corner of his cell complaining about his, his, his luck or whatever. This whole thing would have been different. Instead, he saw his circumstance as another opportunity. Live faithfully in your circumstance. Don't squander it, okay? Second of all, be an example. Paul was an example to many brothers, it says. And they went out and they were encouraged and they were emboldened and they went out and started preaching the gospel. Examples do that, don't they? We get inspired when we watch people endure difficulty with grace. It's not so inspiring when you watch someone, you know, uh, this young, rich, good-looking couple, you know, and they're sitting there on the yacht, you know, drinking champagne. That's not, I mean, that, oh, we envy that maybe, but we don't like, oh, that's inspiring. But when we watch someone who is broken down with the effects of age and they're still serving and loving faithfully, 
and they're enduring the decay of their own body with dignity, and they sing praises to God with all their... That inspires, doesn't it? The rich Hollywood moms who sit there strolling down Sunset Avenue with, with their nannies at home, that doesn't inspire. What inspires is the young mom who's dealing with dirty diapers and lack of sleep. That inspires. Now in that is an implicit argument for coming to church. You can't be an example to people you're not around. Did you know that? You can't be an example and encourage us and inspire us if you're not here with us. So come to church. Live your life in community so that we can be encouraged and inspired by your faithfulness and so that way you can be encouraged and inspired by the faithfulness of others. Because we have been called to this. So what is your circumstance? Do you view it as an obstacle to fulfilling God's plan for your life? Or do you see your circumstance as the means of fulfilling God's plan for your life? I would invite you to be like Paul. Look beyond face value and see what God is doing. He's probably up to something great. But second, the second key is that we need to remember that our circumstance is our duty assignment. What do I mean our duty assignment? Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. All right. Paul was an apostle. And what do apostles do? Well, they go around and they preach the gospel. They work miracles. They, they, they plant churches. But the key is that they're going around, right? So doesn't Paul being yanked off the itinerant trail and thrown in jail seem to undermine his apostolic ministry? I mean, doesn't it kind of? Don't we seem to often think we know what's best for how we would fulfill our mission? I remember when I went to Germany, I was there just a couple days, and my boss said, prepare to be miserable. And he wasn't joking. It was absolutely horrible, threatening people. I mean, it was crazy. He finally, finally got fired. But a boss in the military has a lot of power over your life, and he was, a, it was miserable working for this guy. Now, in the midst of this, you're tempted to think, oh, why bother? I'm just going to roll over in a corner and die or something. But you know what? That was my duty assignment. Paul understands, and the people who were doing ministry out of love understood that that was his duty assignment. Do you think I'm just using a military term because that's my background? Think I'm just being acute? Okay, yeah, yeah, all right. I bet you think I am. Look at verse 15, or 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here. You know those English words, I am put here, those four words? That comes from one Greek word, a military word, which refers to assignment instructions. Okay, so check this out. 
Paul doesn't understand his circumstance in jail to be simply that God is in control and that he will somehow work good out of this bad circumstance. That's not nearly strong enough. Paul understands that there was a mission essential need right here. And God said, you, you're going there. And so he was put there for a purpose, to complete the task at hand. Okay, how does that relate to you? Do you think that you just fell into your lot in life? Or do you understand that a sovereign king who is expanding his kingdom recognizes critical mission needs in key places and he assigns you tasks? So, your slave driver boss, your ungrateful, difficult children, your frustrating spouse, your body that doesn't cooperate, your family that doesn't appreciate you, your church that doesn't get along with you, your government that is turning on you, your finances that aren't working out the way you thought they would? Do you see these as accidents? Or do you recognize with Paul, you are put here. God needed someone right here, right now, to do something. And so he put you there. You and your circumstance are not an accident. Now, It's easy to look at these words because Paul's talking about preaching the gospel and think, you know what? This just applies to people going around preaching about Jesus. That's all it really applies to. And I remember thinking that in uh, in Moody Bible Institute, they, they, they really laid it on thick and they gave a lot of people the impression that if you want to be on God's A team, the varsity leagues, you're going to be in vocational ministry. Everyone else is just JV in it. And that's not true. Maybe you think that because you're stuck at home with dirty diapers or stuck in a dead-end job that you're somehow missing out on God's best. Did you know that's not Reformed and that's not even Protestant thinking? Who's heard of the five solas of the Reformation? Raise your hand. You may not know what they are, but have you heard the phrase five solas? Okay, the last one, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Over the years, that's been misconstrued and people think it applies that it's, it's just about salvation. That's not at all true. When Martin Luther came up with that slogan, it was trying to encapsulate his whole understanding of what the Bible teaches. That every single vocation to which you can legitimately be called is an instrument and a legitimate means of glorifying God. You can glorify God just as much as an apostle if you are a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. You can glorify God as an apostle sitting in jail, or you can glorify God as you are working the daily grind on your job making widgets. Paul here is on a task to do his mission. What is 
yours. To what has God called you that you are to do with excellence to his glory? Is it writing music like Johann Sebastian Bach? And as you know, he famously would do each piece at the end with Soli Deo Gloria, testing, testifying the fact that he was doing his craft to the glory of God. So to what has God called you? And to what he has called you is not an accident. He has you on assignment orders. So, how will you respond to those orders? Will you whine and cry? Or will you say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. And in your little piece of the pie, as you do it faithfully, you are contributing to the success of the advance of the gospel in this whole world. So, your life may seem mundane. It may seem drudgery. But it is no accident. Okay? And then lastly, the third key is we got to remember that God's purpose for you in your circumstance is bigger than your critics. Believe it or not, some of the Roman Christians didn't like Paul. How do you not like Paul? I mean, he's just preaching the pure word, right? Well, he, he's, he's kind of brash. And, and some people, believe it or not, don't really like it when people just stand on the corners and preach Jesus. Some people don't like it when you overthrow the status quo. Did you know that? Some people don't like that. And Paul was all about overthrowing the status quo. He insisted on talking about Jesus everywhere he went and about how it frees us, the word of the gospel, from all of these human regulations and man-made rules. I mean, he was tearing down all their, everything they held dear. People, some people, didn't like him. Now, in the minds of some people, Paul brought jail on himself. I've met lots of people who when someone gets in trouble, even if kind of frankly they were doing the right thing, they think they brought it on themselves by the manner in which they did it. And so Paul, he has a, he has a choice to make. He could sit here and be upset that these people are trying to turn the knife on him. And that's what it means. Turning the knife is, is, is probably the closest. Uh, in verse 17, when it says they're seeking to afflict him, it doesn't mean that they're trying to get him in more trouble with the authorities. It's the afflict me part is internal distress. They're trying to drive him nuts. Hey, you're in jail because you don't know how to do ministry right. Let me show you what a good ministry looks like. You ever seen those obnoxious people? You try real hard, but you don't win first prize, and they come by holding the trophy. Oh, doesn't this look great? <laughs> people like that. Or maybe, you know, just maybe my kids are really bad, but I don't think so. I think they're pretty normal. One child does something that merits displeasure, and as you are giving them the fruit of their, their the wages for their, you know, uh, behavior, the other child comes along, look how helpful I'm being. See what I'm doing? Are my kids only the ones like that? Yeah, I didn't think so. So, But this is the kind of thing they were doing. Paul, let's show you what a successful ministry looks like. 
thinking that it would drive him nuts because they were doing it differently. Now, right here is where we get so hung up and we lose, we lose the opportunity here. They're seeking to afflict him. They're seeking to cause him emotional distress. That sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? Sounds kind of hateful, doesn't it? Now, Paul, you would think, would sit there and go, <laughs> these jerks, I can't believe that. These sinners, I can't believe they won't repent. Look at the damage they're causing to the cause. They're sowing tares among the wheat. Ugh. I can't, I'm not going to, until they repent. I'm, and he sit there with the scowl on his face. Isn't that what we do when someone is trying to afflict us? We just sit there and pout. What does he do? He sits there. And he, I bet he's, the irony of the situation is not lost on him. That even though these people don't like him, nonetheless, he's the inspiration for their ministry. And so he's like, you know what? God's purpose for me of spreading the gospel is being realized in these people. And so you know what? Glory, hallelujah. In other places, God, Paul writes that God will reward each to according to their due. And so God's going to sort it out. But in the meantime, these people are preaching the word. So hallelujah. Now, if Paul was concerned about his ego the way some of us are, well, then sure, he would focus here on the wrongdoing that these people are doing, that, that they're not being nice, they're mean. And he would focus on that and let that hang him up. But as we've already learned in verse 1, he's not concerned about his ego, is he? He's more worried about Jesus Christ getting glorified. And so, you want to think less of me and do ministry to try to think you're spiting me? Okay. I mean, I know what your game is, but still, you're teaching people about Jesus, so hallelujah. Having a low ego or a realistic ego helps us to respond gracefully to creeps. And the world is full of them, is it not? Who has not been told, oh, I can't believe you're raising your kid that way. Let me show you how I would do it. I'm so much better. Or that's at least the implication. Or how you wife, or how you husband, or how you parent, or how you study, or how, how... There's someone who's always thinking they know how to do your job better, isn't there? The world has no shortage of critics. And Paul teaches us, hey, if they decide that they want to outdo me and, and you know, show me how I don't know how to be a parent by, by being a good parent, well, glory, hallelujah. If these people want to underscore that I don't know what I'm doing as a, as a husband and by showing me what a good husband is like, okay. Now let's pause here for a second because this verse is sometimes abused. Sometimes. Verse 17, verses 17 and 18 are taken out of context to mean we should not be critical of false teachers because, hey, after all, they're talking about Jesus. 
So let's not, let's not get caught up in this doctrine stuff and let's just celebrate the fact they're preaching about Jesus. Well, you know what? Paul never does that. In fact, in this book, a few chapters later, he's going to talk about false teachers. And you know what he says about them? He calls them dogs. He calls, them, he calls people names. How's that for not being prim and proper? Consistently across the book, across the, the corpus of the New Testament, false teachers and their false doctrine are denounced in the strongest of terms. Because false doctrine kills. It takes away your faith in the true and living God and places it upon something else. Whether it's the, 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 the creation rather than the creator or the blessing rather than the blesser, it diverts our attention and it causes us to settle for something less than the best and so it ultimately destroys. And so Paul makes no bones about the badness of false doctrine. So don't for a second believe that these verses are talking about giving a pass to false teachers. That's not it at all. It's people who are preaching the true gospel for wrong reasons. Everyone has critics. So, Paul's mission in life was the advance of the gospel. And these critics were trying to show him what a good ministry looked like. And ironically... He was their inspiration to do ministry. So you know what? You can be critical of me. Just keep on doing good. How do you respond to your critics? Do you focus on the insult to your ego? Or do you allow what they are doing to stand on its own two legs and allow God to be the judge of what their motives are? So, in this passage, we see that Paul is able to have joy. He emanates joy. He does joy towards his circumstances and towards his critics because he is firmly, firmly convinced that God wins and that through Christ, he is the victor. And that what God has said about the past, it is forgotten. What God is saying about the present, that he is working out our salvation. And what he says about the future, that we will be vindicated and rewarded. This trumps anything that I perceive. For Paul, it was real. And so he was able to look beyond the face value of his circumstance. He was able to see that his circumstance is his duty assignment. And third, he was able to recall that God's purpose for him in his circumstance was bigger than any of his critics. My hope and my prayer for each of us as we live in our circumstance is that our perspective would mirror Paul's. And then together as a community, we can encourage and inspire one another to live faithfully according to what God has called each of us. Let's pray.